Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. We're the Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers number one. Yes, we're the Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers Hello, everyone. You're listening to Battle Red Radio. I'm Matt Weston. This evening, I'm joined by Carlos and Jordan, as you know, as Texans Thoughts on the internet. How are you guys doing tonight? I'm pretty good. Excited to talk. O'Brien. Doing good. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So tonight's show is kind of a, a simple premise where the idea is that everything is in and of itself. So like hate and love, I guess, are the exact same thing, where without one, you can't have the other without any sort of reference point. And so you can't have courage without cowardice. And in this case, you can't have hating Bill O'Brien and saying he's a very bad, stupid football coach without at least understanding what you know he's good at doing. And right now, the Texans fan base is kind of split. Or I wouldn't say probably it's split, but like most of the fan base is adamant that he's a bad head coach, he's a bad general manager, he needs to go. And there's that other part of the fan base that is like really entrenched that, no, he's not that bad. He just needs more time. Uh, he finally has he finally has a chance to build the team exactly how he wants it now that he's the general manager and you know all those sorts of things. And so I think both sides kind of lose their argument whenever they don't admit you know what he's bad at or even on the cases most people, like what he's good at. And so we kind of know what he's bad at already. You know, years uh, first down runs, sticking to awful quarterbacks that are either tall and white or athletic or athletically limited and smart. Um, the inability to work with others. Alfred Blue having 183 carry seasons, stagnated ball control offenses, uh, constantly churning out you know crappy quarterbacks, being flat and preparing big games, getting bad values in trades, not utilizing his skill players well, uh, generally being unable to work with others at all. And also, like, nobody from his staff has graduated to excel in any other places. Like, I don't even think George Godsey has a job. And if he does, he's probably, like, an offensive control uh, assistant somewhere. But nobody's really kind of gone from the Texans to go have success in other spots as far as uh, as far as being a coach goes. And now that he's the general manager, he's been able to make absurd trades, act in a short-signed, desperate manner, and then also get you know some terrible returns from the trades that he's made as well here. Um, for the bad things, Carlos, am I missing thing here at all? Or is that kind of sum it all up? That is a fantastic cover for what's wrong with Bill O'Brien. And then the one thing I could be um, maybe missing be like a lack of postseason success. Um, you know, beating being the Raiders with Matt McGloin, or I mean, not even with Matt McGloin, he was hurt that game as well. Being the Raiders with Connor Cook, who never started another game, um, doesn't really signal like a lot of playoff success and still not getting past the second round as it's always been, you know. I think something else might be the handling of his star players. You know, I think uh, the JD situation and just with Hop, uh, that's definitely another thing to add on to the list. Yeah, I like that one a lot too. 
Uh, Jordan, do you have any other bad Bill O'Brien qualities? That's pretty good. I don't think there's much else to say, but I got a couple more. Um, just last year, rotating Chris Clark. His power went up. But that one really grinded my gears. I just don't know the logic behind that. Um, also, not having a play fourth down against the Chiefs, that's pretty inexcusable. You're literally the play caller. Um, just general like clock and challenging flags mismanagement, that too. But yeah, you, you pretty much nailed, you nailed it. Yeah, the, the Chris Clark thing is absurd where it's like, I know, I feel like he's kind of like a symbol of the Bill O'Brien era where he just keeps popping it keeps popping up like consistently, you know, throughout the time. Like I think he's been starting in Houston here and there since like 2015, and uh, you know he never is able to fully go away. And hopefully this year with the heck pick, and hopefully heck doesn't play at all. But hopefully Howard stays healthy and Texas stays <laughs> healthy, and you know we don't have to see any any sort of Chris Clark uh, see his face, you know, kind of pop up ever again here in Houston. But you never know; it's always like one twist and knee away from Chris Clark showing back up. And I'm sure he could play guard if they absolutely have have to play guard as well too. So the so what we're gonna do for tonight's show is kind of talk about some of the good things, uh, I, I guess about Bill O'Brien and some of this is a lot of scraping the barrel, like really trying to dig deep and and do the best we can to come up with some of the stuff. So the first one I have here is that he wins football games, and so in O'Brien's career he's 54 and 46. The Texans have won the AFC South four of his six seasons as a head coach. He's had a winning record every season, except for 2017 when Deshaun Watson tore his ACL, and Bill O'Brien's 2014 draft selection, Tom Savage, took over as the starter. And the Texans, of course, went 4-12 and that season. Um, you know, and I, and I think like the people who still believe in Bill O'Brien, still like Bill O'Brien as head coach, they kind of point to the fact that you know, the Texans aren't like a terrible football team at all ever. They consistently win games, and and they they kind of able to point to that argument that well what what other options would Houston have like they could bring somebody else in who would be worse and wouldn't be able to win games and consistently win the division and for a franchise that has been you know the majority of the time it's been really bad and been like a Cleveland Browns sort of franchise or a Jaguars sort of franchise they even like winning nine games and winning the division is a is a very grand achievement whenever you think about the Texans over the course of you know their eighteen year history or whatever it is now. Um, Carlos, so do you buy, do you like this argument that Bill O'Brien just wins football games? I mean, look, we we handle a lot of you know variances in the strength of schedule year over year. Uh, he wins actually sometimes he loses the easy ones too, but he does pull out wins uh, when they're necessary. I mean, we've made the playoffs pretty regularly during his tenure. He's gotten us there. I just feel like, you know, whenever it comes down to performing on a big stage, it almost always goes haywire. I guess just to keep things positive, like, it could be a lot worse. That's kind of how it is, I guess. Um, and with, with coaching and with just things in general, I guess, people tend to think, like, new is always better. And we don't know, like, for sure. Like, Bill O'Brien's a pretty awful coach, but he's not, like, a bottom, like, five coach. Like, there's definitely worse people out there. And so we don't know for sure. Like, say we we get rid of him, and we could end up with a worse coach. We don't know for sure. Yeah, I, I was kind of point to, like, he gets the bare minimum out of the team and roster. And so I think, like, usually, you know, whatever the Texans record ends up with, that's usually about, like, what their talent level should at least get out of them. And maybe it's a little bit slightly less, um, especially since, like, Watson's been the quarterback, and, you know, he's been such a great deep thrower, and they're constantly throwing the ball in first down. 
and the offensive play calling, it kind of limits the offense in general. But I think over the course of, you know, a six-year head coaching career, like I do think like he gets the bare minimum out of his team. And there's plenty of head coaches like, you know, Freddie Kitchens or Hugh Jackson or even, I don't know, I don't I don't dig Doug Marone that much, but maybe that's a bad option as well too. Like Adam Gase, for example. Like those are all head coaches who don't even get the bare minimum of talent of their roster and constantly see players leave and, and play better elsewhere. Um, and Houston's seen that a little bit of some of the quarterbacks were like, you know, name redactive is worse here. Brian Hoyer was slightly better elsewhere. Ryan Fitzpatrick is slightly better elsewhere. But in general, it's like teams, players don't usually leave Houston, go on and have like really great, great times in other spots aside from like, you know, Owen Daniels winning a Super Bowl. Um, but I do think he does get like the bare minimum and he's you know, slightly below average. And like, yeah, whatever the uncertainty of the future could be with somebody else is something that you know, could be an issue. Like, I, I do think there are other options that would be you know interesting. Like, I would love Eric Bieniemy here, but like, who knows what he could do in a head coaching role? And and I guess like the mystery of the unknown is kind of and the uncertainty of the unknown is kind of one thing that maybe keeps you you know hanging on to a head coach longer than you should. Um, which kind of like some like with the Bengals, Marvin Lewis. Yeah, for sure. I just think. I definitely am with you. There's definitely a lot of good options, and I'm obviously in favor of getting rid of. But we don't know if like the grass is green. The grass isn't always green on the other side. Basically, that's what my point is. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one I have here is that he wins close games. So usually, close games are a coin flip year to year. If a team goes like eight and one in one score games, so like the Texans last year, they went nine three one score games. They typically regress the mean and. Uh, get closer to that 50-50 mark, and sometimes they even flip over and see like a dramatic uh, flip in their one possession record. And you kind of see a lot too, where you have a team who goes, you know, one six and one score games, and they just have like constantly dumb mistakes, and all of a sudden that one possession record flips to make the playoffs. And a really good example of that is the 2017 Chargers, who I think went like one and eight and one score games in the following year. They went like five and one in one score games, and then they're in the playoffs, and then they're getting their teeth kicked in by the Patriots in the divisional round. But it happens all the time. But in Bill O'Brien's career, he is 29-24 in one possession games, which is a little bit better than a coin flip. And there, he's also 4-1 in overtime games, and so like, which is kind of weird, too, in its own sense, where you know, O'Brien, I feel like, constantly makes bad challenges, makes bad fourth down decisions. Or he's been better about fourth down, but the Chiefs game was a big example of that. Um, constantly mismanages the clock, like isn't like prepared for certain plays in the red zone and, and all sorts of things. And even though despite all of that, he still has a positive record in one score games. Um, Jordan, do you kind of buy this argument that he's a good close game coach or is this just kind of like a fluke over the course of uh, 53 games? It definitely helps. And I think a lot of it for me, like close games, you think about like your quarterback kind of pulling it out for you. Think about your quarterback making a clutch game winning drive. That's kind of what I think about when um, you talk about a one possession game. And for him, like he has the benefit of Deshaun Watson, but also most of his career, he's went through QB purgatory. So that does kind of speak to his ability to coach and win games. And and it kind of reminds me of, I think there's some random stat that like Bill O'Brien is like, whatever and something and like only lost like a couple games um when he's like leading after halftime i think it's like 20 and one something something but that kind of reminds me of that too so that's another thing gotcha um carlos do you do you buy this argument that bill bryan's a good close game coach because of this 29 24 record um i do think that jordan made a really good point when he talked about 
Bill O'Brien going through quarterback purgatory. I mean, whether that was his own making or not, but he did deal with a lot of, you know, average, mediocre, subpar quarterbacks and managed to pull out some really close dubs. So I think uh, there is some value to the argument uh, to say that Bill O'Brien does know how to win some close games, but his time management, uh, some of his decision-making puts us in those one-possession game uh, positions. Yeah, it is It is bizarre Like that's kind of, that the record is what it is. Uh, and it's like not even just a Deshaun Watson thing, like even going back to you know 2016, like name redacted, he won some close games. Like even Bram Whedon is one to know for Houston. He won his spot star against Tennessee. Where like he did nothing but he hit a sideline throw down the right sideline to set a field goal that won that game too. And so it's like as as weird as it's been, and like even with Deshaun Watson without Deshaun Watson and all the kind of like the hair pulling, um, you know, game management decisions he's made. Like it still has kind of come out uh, on a positive side for Houston in these one-score games. The next one I have here is that he exceeds his win totals, his expected win totals. And so what I mean by that is if you look at Pythagorean record, which just says how many games the team should win based off their point differential. So like if you typically outscore your opponent over the course of a season, you tend to win more games. And it kind of goes back to the fact that if you win by 10 points, there's less chance of something bizarre happening. Like you go to take a snap to kneel the ball, you fumble it, and their team gets it, and they kick a field goal, and they win the game. And what other weird things can happen? Those things aren't an issue whenever you're up by you know 14 or so. Um, and it tends to be that really good teams beat bad teams by a lot of points, and mediocre teams tend to play a lot of close games, which has kind of been said during O'Brien's tenure where he's played a lot of close games and has been able to win them. But if you go back to 2014, Houston was negative 0.8 for expected win totals. In 2015, he was plus 0.2. In 2016, he was plus 2.5. In 2017, he was negative 1.7. In 2019, he was plus 2.2. And in 2018, he was plus 0.8. So this comes out to 3.2 more wins than his Pythagorean record, uh, just based on point differential. So, Carlos, like, do you think, do you, I guess, like, do you see this as, him playing this many close games as being like the ability uh, of like his style of play. And do you see this like doing better than expected as like his ability to, you know, make kind of like a mud file of a game and make the game in his style and then allow his guys to kind of use their talent to, to win games in the end. I think it really does come down a lot to individual players showing out in clutch moments and pulling these wins out of the hat. Um, I do think that over his career, you know, with the adjusted win totals and everything and the Pythagorean record, I think it does speak to his ability to keep the team in the game. Um, but I do think that it does depend a lot on the players to stand up and really show out, you know, when it matters the most to pull out that dub and improve at least the perspective on his win totals. Yeah, I think that's pretty interesting. I think it's one of the best stats that that you found actually expected win totals. The fact that he beats it every time, or I guess overall is plus 3.2. That's pretty good. I wouldn't expect that from him, honestly. And I guess, I guess it just shows that I guess one way to look at it is maybe just like the media being down on us and like not really expecting us to win that many games based off like the previous season or however they do it. Um, But if he's consistently coming on top like this and doing better than everyone thinks that we should do, that's got to speak to something, but I agree. It's not all about him. Obviously he can only do so much. The players are the ones who actually go out and do it on the field. So yeah, it's really interesting. 
Yeah, and I think a lot of that comes out to his 2016 season when I think they won. You know, they won. They won two point. Um, when they won two point two point five more games than expected. I think their Pythagorean record was like six point seven that year, something along those lines. And you know, two thousand eight. 2017, the following year, you're kind of expecting that regression to happen. And it did happen with Watson, where I think Houston, whenever he was the starting quarterback, they were like one in three in one score games and lost those close games to Seattle and Kansas City and New England. And you kind of saw that one possession record kind of flip in 17. And then once he got hurt and Savage was the quarterback, like the whole season was over. And Savage, I think, was even, you know, had a negative one score record. And uh, that season as well too. And so like it kind of flipped in 17 and your know, next year is going to be really interesting for Houston where, you know, it's Watson's fourth year and they didn't really add a whole lot to the pass defense and they made a lot of change-ups with their skill positions. And they're also a team that went nine, three and one score games in 2019 and uh, had a positive turnover differential and you'd expect regression from them and regressions from 10 and six, you know, usually means uh, a possible like, you know, a and record that can miss the playoffs. And so that's something you really keep your eyes out on for next year is if, the decisions they made this offseason will outweigh uh, that possible one flip in their one score record in 2020 as well. Oh, sorry. I was saying I pulled up the, the records here for halftime stats too that you mentioned. And so I think doing this right here, the Texans have played 40 games where they had a halftime record over O'Brien's career, and they've only lost three of those games. So they are 37 and three whenever they're leading at halftime. And those losses were to Indy in 2017 when they were down, they were up 17 16 at halftime. They lost, uh, they were down, they're, I don't know, I'm reading this wrong. They lost 13 22, and then 2018, they lost 30 32. And then 2019 against New Orleans, they lost 28 30 after leading at halftime. So it's only happened three times where they blew a second half lead. Yeah. It's actually very impressive. I wonder what the formula for that is. I guess he gets to like run the ball and kill the clock like he wants to. I don't really know. Yeah, it's weird. I I'm about to go through here and see how many of those are one score games, but um, it looks like close to like 15 of them or so are one score games, and the rest they kind of like had their their weird situations where they played well the entire game and blew out the opponent, uh, which <laughs> tends to happen every once in a while, you know, for this team. So the the next one I have here is that Bill O'Brien has this positive winning record despite starting the following quarterbacks. Ryan Fitzpatrick went six and six. Case Kim went two and zero. Oh. T.J. Yates went two and three. Brian Hoyer went five and four. Ryan Mallow went two and four. Tom Savage went two and seven. Brandon Whedon went one and zero. Oh. And of course, Namor Jackson went eight and six. And then um, even A.J. McCarron went zero oh and one last year. And so he's won he's won games with. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight uh, quarterbacks that you can classify as horrendous to slightly below average. And a lot of this is his own doing, you know, by helping run a team and making decisions, you know, with Rick Smith and then even on his own uh, regarding the quarterback position. And by kind of like sticking and having this prototype of what he likes and who he likes to work with, you know, it's kind of hurt him over time. And uh, like he, he won games because of it, but it's still, you know, probably his fault too. And nonetheless, I don't think most coaches could have this same positive win total despite like throwing out this, uh, this constant, just like awful, horrendous quarterback play. Uh, Carlos, which one of these quarterbacks is your favorite out of this batch of seven guys? Okay. This is actually a pretty easy one. I was looking at it and made a quick decision. It's definitely TJ. Um, 
mainly because he is literally the Tiger King. I mean, we might as well just start calling him Joe Exotic at this point. Uh, just the Bengal Tamer, you know. I mean, it's pretty. It's a small sample size, but whenever we play the the Bungles, I'm willing to just, you know, sign TJ to like a week long contract, bring him in, and let him run. Give Deshaun an off week. Uh, everybody else, you know, it's just kind of. A little bit of pulling teeth. Fitzpatrick had some good moments. Uh, Keenum, I mean, the hype behind Case coming in and playing and being a Houston product was huge. It was fun, but uh, I think at the end of the day, I think TJ means more to me than any of the other guys on that list. What was the question? Is Who's the best? Or who's yeah, who's your favorite, who's your Sorry, favorite out of this uh, malodorous bunch? Ooh, that's, that's a tough question. I don't know why. I always had a soft spot for Brian Hoyer. I don't know what it was, but he he's one of my favorite, but my favorite guy's got to be Fitzmagic. He was just like, you know, one day, one game, he looks like the MVP. Fire, nothing, he looks great. And then the next day, it looks like he's thrown with a blindfold on. Like, I don't know what's wrong with him, but he always, his highs are really high, man. And his lows are awful, but he was always fun. He's definitely fun to watch, that's for sure. Yeah, he he was fun to watch. I liked how he dove head forward all the time and like just constantly <laughs> like just threw his head everywhere and we always kinda of joked around that he was the you know, homeless guy diving for the last pizza crust behind uh you know, back in the dumpster <laughs> and that sort of thing too. And but always diving ahead. And he also like he can he had some moves too. I remember I think I was doing some game charting for football outsiders and like the year before he signed in Houston, like two thousand thirteen. And I was like, you know, Fitzpatrick does have some mu- some moves, Charm, like they play Tennessee St. Louis in week 13 when both teams are like three and 12 or whatever. And uh, it was hilarious just like watching him like juke and make some plays on the move and stuff. And he was fine. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get a chance to love him because I was you know, so distraught that they didn't take a quarterback in 14 that could actually like come in and start and compete. And they were just like, yeah, we're going to go with Fitzpatrick and we're okay with that. And I s- still can't believe it. can't believe that aspect of it to its day. Um, I think my favorite may be Ryan Mallett just because his arm strength was r- absolutely ridiculous. Oh. And he was also so fussy yeah. and he was so petulant oh, yeah. and he was just so tall and, you know, stupid. <laughs> and, uh, but like some like, and like watching him throw the ball 140 miles per hour at like on a drag route that was three yards away was just some like the highest <laughs> comedy in uh, Texans history. It was like they put Lurch at quarterback. <laughs> Uh, so, Joy, I was looking up some of these numbers again here. So, for the halftime leads, 18 of the 32 wins were in one-score games. And then whenever the Texans don't have a lead at halftime, they're 15-41. and 41. And so, it's kind of like they're, they're like a dog race where the first dog out of the gate wins. But for the Texans, it's like, well, if they're winning at halftime, they're probably going to win. If they're losing at halftime, they're probably going to lose. And so it really is kind of like the bizarre, the splits that are here for Houston whenever they're leading or not leading at halftime. And this is just a lead of one, for example. Like we're not talking about like a lead of seven or being down three or anything. We're just talking, we're just talking about one point uh, making that much of a substantial difference at halftime. Sorry, what was the change in records? So they were, so they, they were 32 and three, I believe. In one score games, eighteen of their thirty-two, eighteen of their thirty-two wins were were or when they had a lead at halftime, I believe they were thirty-two and three. But eighteen of their thirty-two wins were one score games, and then when they didn't have a lead at halftime, they're fifteen and forty-one. At halftime, how that changes is that they're up or down, but hopefully we can come out hot this year and, and just take the lead and never look back. Yeah, so they're they're thirty-seven and three when they have a lead at halftime, 
and they're 15 and 41 when they're trailing at halftime. Uh, so okay, the, cool. the next one I have here is that at times the Houston Texans can have some really great offensive game plans. And so like in 2017, he did a really good job simplifying the offense and using ghost motions and jet sweeps to create a vertical passing game with Watson and creating like some really simple downfield throws that he could have success with. Um, when Watson was a starter that year, his rookie year, they averaged 34.6 points a game. Last season, the Texans had like one really great vertical game against Atlanta. I really like the tight end repass options against teams with bad linebackers like Kansas City, like Jackson, like Oakland. Uh, I really didn't like him. They play against teams with good linebacker play like the Baltimore Ravens where it didn't work at all whatsoever. You just have Watson the flat with nothing to do with the football. And also, I think before Watson even too, like from you know 14 to 16, I think he did a fine job like muddying the game up and turning into a rock fight where you know, his defense could consistently win games for him to the tune of like, you know, 20 to 16. And the football, you know, games were boring and, you know, kind of like terrible and stupid at times, but they were able to consistently win because of the defense that they had. And, you know, they wasted a really good defense and their ceiling was limited because of the quarterback decisions in the offense. But um, the offensive game plan didn't match the style of the team at the time. So, like, Carlos, do you like Bill O'Brien's game plan sometimes? And also, like, why do you think he's only, like, consistently able to generate them um, every once in a while instead of always being able to just have a really good, sound, uh, you know, kind of playbook entering each week, week in and week out? You know, I think there are times where the offense seems to come alive. I mean, everybody talks about the Will Fuller split on and off, you know, when he's on, when he's around. Um, I think that when he's forced to break out of his original game plan, he can get creative and it can open up the offense. And we see it kind of in these uh, comebacks that they have every once in a while. Um, when they throw out the game plan, they, they kind of start to spark and let Sean do his thing. Uh, it helps generate a lot of momentum for the offense. So I think the reason why it can't happen week to week is because he gets, you know, he sees this wild success, maybe one game or, uh, tight comeback win, then he goes right back to the old drawing board and does the same game plan, you know, or a very similar game plan for the next opponent next week, and he sticks to his core philosophy instead of taking what seems to work and incorporating it into his weekly game plans. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think, too, it's kind of like, I think, look, I've been watching a bunch of these coaching, coaching clinic videos to try to you better understand scheme and what coaches are looking for and how they kind of develop their offenses. And like even going to like Nick Saban and uh, all these coaches, they talk about how important it is to stop the run or be able to run the football. And then you look at all the analytics and everything says the exact opposite that you run the football really doesn't matter at all. The only time you should run the football is if you have six or less defenders in the box. And if you have anything more than that, you should throw the football. And I think like more coaches starting to understand it, like Andy Reid in Kansas city, um, that, you know, throwing the football is really good and you should do it more often. And so I think a lot of it too is just kind of like archaic and coming up as a head coach in the 90s and um, still kind of sticking that same philosophy that he was taught over and over again. And maybe this year is kind of the year that changes where he understands that, you know, vertical passing offense would be the best way to be like the, the that should be the core competency of an offense to Sean Watson, especially an offense with, you know, Brand Cooks and Will Fuller and Kenny Stills. Do you have any uh, anything to add about these Weird, kind of like bizarre, really great offensive game plans from Bill O'Brien, Jordan. Um, yeah. So our team, our offense in particular, is very volatile. Like we've been mentioning the Will Fuller splits, but also it just kind of seems like it's almost like he picks and chooses just random 
randomly just by like rolling a dice of when he wants to call a good game or not. Like there's obvious ones where the Patriots last year, he called a great game. I'll give him that. And that one's probably one of the ones where he's like, okay, I got to get back a bill and I got to win one game finally. But other than that, like you look at the random games, like the Falcons, like, I don't know. That was just like a completely random game like that we just kind of just took off and just really used the vertical passing game, really attacked our linebackers too. So I don't know what his method to his madness is at all. I think he's a very tough person to figure out. But I hope he sticks to it like you've been saying. We've got the weapons for it. The offense is tailored to it. And it's tailored to Deshaun's strengths, bringing in all these speed, wide receivers. That's what he's really good. He's really good at throwing the deep ball. He was pro- I think he was the first or the second most accurate quarterback last year so we're playing strengths and it's yeah and i i mean it's even weird kind of last year too where they had games like against the jaguars for example in london where he threw i think zero passes or 15 yards that game you know and it's like yeah this works against the jaguars but what are you gonna do whenever you play baltimore kansas city where you, you need to score 31 points or you can be prepared to be able to do something like that and uh and i do i do feel like o'brien at times I mean, a lot of times he's just trying to get the bare minimum done to be able to win games instead of uh, using the regular season as the chance for your reps and try out different things that can work in your games where they really matter. So, um, and so like even that Atlanta game too, I think one of the things that really screwed Atlanta was, you know, one, their cornerback play was bad. Um, two, their pass defense was bad, especially their rush. Like it's just Vic Beasley running around the quarterback and the occasional Grady Jarrett pressure. But also they lost Ricard Neal too the week before and they really had no communication on their second year in the back end. And you know, he's kind of like their leader at the free safety position. And they were constantly able to put pressure on the middle of the field safety and force in one direction, use those same like deep crossers over and over again that you know worked against Atlanta but didn't work as well when they played Baltimore a few weeks later and that sort of thing. So I don't know. It, it is volatile and I wonder how much of it in the past few years has to do with just Wolf Fuller you're constantly being in and out of the lineup too. Um, the next reason I have here is that he hired Romeo Cornell to be the team's defensive coordinator. And so from 2014-2019, the Texans defense ranked 7th, 7th, 11th in points allowed. Then the one Mike Vrabel season, this dropped to 32nd, and they went back up to 4th and then 19th in points allowed. Then in DVOA, they ranked 6th, 8th, 9th, and then 23rd in Mike Vrabel season. And then last year, they ended up ranking 26th in defensive DVOA. Um, and so, like, I, I do think he, just, like, his hands-off approach on the defense and hiring Cornell and sticking with him was really valuable. I think Cornell did a great job here throughout his entire career. I know last year, you know, things dropped off some, and uh, there were some weird things, like, you know, the off man he played and not giving Jacob Martin as many snaps as he should and um, <laughs> some of, like, the pass rushing, like, situation lineups that he used. Like, I don't know why Angela Blackson was ever on, on the field on a third down at all. Um, but overall, he just didn't have the horses, you know, and, you know, playing press man with Jonathan Joseph on third and seven is just a death sentence and, um, and those sorts of things. And so I think it was more of a talent issue than uh, a scheme issue at Cornell. But regardless of last season, over the last, you know, six seasons with Bill Bryant's head coach, you know, Cornell was a really great defensive coordinator. He did a really good job and, you know, his defense carried this team for, you know, the better part of four seasons there, um, for Houston as well too. So, Jordan, what did you think about Cornell during his time here, and do you think that was one of the best decisions that Bill O'Brien made? Yeah, I think you're completely right with the whole hands-off approach kind of thing. I wish that's what he would do with the offense. I wish he would bring in a different voice, different opinion, and kind of take over that. But he was able to do it with the defense. Cornell has been a very well in regard. 
And you're right, he, he's done really good with us. Um, his kind of like bend but don't break kind of style. He's constantly has us in quarters coverage, kind of taking away the deep ball. That's really the main thing that I think was great about him. And you saw effective when we had the pass rushes to go after quarterbacks and just be able to rush forward because Cornell doesn't really like the blitz. So he just rushes forward a lot and and just and if we have like a healthy JJ Watt, we have Merciless in his prime and Clowney, like those were the years where our D line was scary and our defense was nasty. And like you said, like we didn't really have the horses for it last year. We need some more talent. Um so it wasn't entirely fair to put all the blame on him. But he's he's definitely been a great hire by Bill O'Brien. I think he's been a super solid addition. I think uh, him jumping in is completely uh, saved the last couple seasons. I mean, outliers last season, obviously, but um, for the most part, I think he's done a very good job. He's probably one of the best coordinators we've ever had. And, you know, like Jordan said, Bill O'Brien should have just left everything alone, you know, have the coordinators run everything. I mean, really, with Cal and his vote of confidence in him, he really could just be king of the castle at this point. So just let somebody else do the work. And Rack's done an extremely good job. I just think he's getting a little up there. Who knows how much longer he's going to want to coach for. So hopefully Weaver's got the stuff to uh, to help out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Cornell's like in his early 70s right now, too. And um, the other interesting thing about this defense was, like you know, Jordan mentioned about uh, rushing your front four, uh, the Texans' pass defense throughout their throughout Cornell's career has been like it's been entirely dependent on the pass rush. Where when the pass rush is great, they are like a, a top three defense. When it isn't, they're like a bottom six defense or so. And it's a team that's really dependent on the pass rush. And that was one of the one of the reasons of many that like I absolutely hated the Clowney trade was just how important a pass rush is for Houston and how much of a reliance it is. And then if you know something happened a lot like happened last year. You know, their pass rusher or crater without um, somebody like Clowney who can step in and you know, kind of carry a pass rush on his own. And like, yeah, he doesn't have the sack numbers, but he has the pressures and the quarterback hits. And um, it was by far like the most productive rusher that even Seattle had last year, too. Um, the other the other thing about Cornell, like entering this year or last year, too, is he was like top 10 in blitz rate, which is kind of weird for a Cornell team where they typically don't blitz all that much. But he blitzed a lot more last season. He tried just about everything, but like nothing really worked at all. Um, it was just constantly just like I I I felt so bad kind of watching some of the tape where it's it just looks like they're playing patty cake along the defensive line. He has six guys blitzing and nobody's able to even make the quarterback uncomfortable. And I'm sure it was very frustrating for him to try to like figure out how to do anything at all behind that. And that was you know one of the big reasons why Houston finished 26th in defensive DVOA last year. Yeah, I think that's a big thing. I think scheming up pressure. I guess so. I didn't know that he was top 10 in, in blitz rate, but. One thing that I was like, I've been watching for recently when I've been going over the defense is like us using stunts. And we will use stunts a lot on third down. Like when it's third and long, we'll usually rush four and we'll do stunts, like tight um, end tackle stunts. Or is that what they're called? Yeah. Anyways, um, but we're just like really bad at running those. Like I don't know if that's a coaching thing or what, but like our guys just don't seem to get the fundamentals of that down. So maybe Weaver's better at doing that. Maybe he can scheme them up because that's an easy way. Like, even if you don't have to blitz, like just running stunts, like that confuses our offensive line all the time. Like, I don't know why we can't do that to other people. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and it's really just kind of like 
creating uh, interior pressure or like creating pressure. Like the first guy needs to draw two blocks, you know, and that first guy's not doing that. And then, or the second guy needs to come tie off that block as well too. And so sometimes you see the first guy draw two defend two blockers, but the second guy doesn't come tie around that block and he goes wide and looping and the center is able to step in and pick him up too. And that, that blitz rate number I brought up, that's just from pro football reference. They have like an advanced stats page and they get their charring data from, you know, who knows where. Maybe they get it imported from China or something. Um, but they have Houston as the top 10 blitz rate. And whenever Football Outsiders comes out the Almanac in, you know, late July, early August, that kind of talks about, well, this is f- four blitzers, three rush- three rushers, four rushers, five rushers, six or more. And so you have a much better idea of how many rushers they're consistently bringing. Um, but for now, that's kind of the best I can do. The last thing I have here is he holds others accountable. He doesn't, I, don't, I wouldn't say he holds himself accountable, but he holds others <laughs> accountable consistently. Um, previous offensive coordinator, George Godsey, got fired and lost play calling duties. Previous special teams coach, Larry Izzo, got fired. And once he was fired, the special teams really took off in, I believe, it was 2017. And, and also they made a, a really big like push to making sure that they have guys who only play special teams. And what's been something that's been like a constant Achilles heel for the Texans has now been just to lift eyes on the strengths of the team too. Um, he has, the accountability thing's kind of weird because like, James Devlin or Mike Mike Devlin's still there coaching the offensive line, you know, even as all the problems that they've had, even developing some of their younger offensive linemen. Um, but I think overall, whenever it comes to his staff, I do think if there's an issue or like a guy's not doing a good job or players are suffering or, you know, the play calling's bad, he disagrees with it. He's done a he's been he has a, he's had a quick switch where he'll pull somebody and make a decision quickly. And you can kind of see the same thing whenever he made that hilarious decision to start Tom Savage week one and pulled him after the first half and you know, went with Watson immediately. Um, but I do think like for others, he does hold them fairly accountable. And that's one of the strengths that he has as a head coach. Uh, Carlos, do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I think uh, he's got a really quick trigger on swapping people in and out if they're, you know, not performing up to par or in his eyes. Um, I do think that he does really believe in, the decisions that he makes and he's very confident in pretty much everything that he does. I mean, whether we feel one way or another about it, he, uh, he sticks to his gun. So I definitely agree. Yeah. And for me, I really like that you brought up the special teams point. I remember literally being had to punt or kick off and just knowing that someone was going to break a big return. It might not be a first touchdown, but like they would always get past like that 20 or 25-yard marker. They'd always get extra yardage off that, and it was so annoying. And I literally remember being more nervous about giving up yards on kick and punt returns than like actually on defense. Because like those <laughs> years when we had a really good defense, we would literally be getting three and outs every time, but then when we had to punt them back, that's where they got most of the yardage, and they got good field position. That's the only way that they ever scored on us. And It was just so frustrating. So I'm definitely glad he brought in was it Brad Seeley mm-hmm. and mostly I guess he's gone now but they brought in a bunch of guys and they brought more in this year so I'm glad they're putting an emphasis on that because last year was amazing last year was like locked down so I hope they can repeat that for sure yeah the one play that always comes to mind with the awful special teams in the Houston Texans era well I guess there's two plays one is that kickoff touchdown return cool. they give up to New England in the 2016 division round and the other one I think is from the same year when they got uh, like absolutely spanked my Minnesota, but they put Jay Prosh as the gunner on a punt to like try to run some like <laughs> twist and punt the ball on the right side or like punch the ball towards him. So you make a tackle and they punted it to the other hash mark 
And uh, he was like seven or eight yards away from the punt returner. And I can't remember Minnesota score, but they brought the ball into the red zone after that. And it was one of the you know, most hilariously dumb things I've ever seen on a football field. Um, but you know, I think the one special teams thing, I'm glad. I'm really glad you know Shane Leckler finally got old enough where they could be like, yeah, we can finally move <laughs> on after uh, years of having a bad punt unit, which he was part of too. So those are all the all the reasons I have for why Bill O'Brien is a good head coach. Um, Carlos, let's hear your two reasons that you got for why Bill O'Brien's a good head coach. Sure. So the first one I had um, is definitely that he's taken ownership of this team. I mean, it is his job at the end of the day. However, it seems like he's really, really beholden to his vision. And he's spent the last couple of years constructing everything in this grand scheme that he's trying to stick to. And he wants to do it here. So he's done everything in his power to make sure that there's nothing standing in his way of making or at least forming the team to how he sees it operating going forward. And he's consolidated power and he's done all the things necessary where, you know, a lot of teams, they just run through head coach after head coach after head coach. And like we said earlier, you know, seeing some sort of standard set with BOB, it's, it's better than going out and venturing to the unknown and dealing with, you know, one fluke after another and all these guys just failing out constantly, you know, like Cleveland, um, you know, we just have something solid. And then the second point was going to be about the, uh, you know, how he lets defense coordinators do whatever they want on defense without the ball. They, they let them take accountability for it. Uh, but we've already kind of expunged on that a little bit. Yeah, I, I I like that point, that first point, if, you know, Brian was a, a better head coach and general manager where it's like if he's going to be the central figure, kind of like a college program where he runs everything, it all flows for him. And I think that that model works whenever you have um, a guy like Bill Belichick who, one, understands value really well, and two, is one of the, the greatest defensive coaches of all time. And so whenever you have that sort of set, it tends to work pretty well. And then also, like he does, I feel like he does a really good job delegating and having guys he really trusts and uh, in in the roles from there, from everything, from like personnel, uh, the player, the guy who manages personnel to his head scouts and everything else. Like it seems like their entire organizational structure really makes sense for them on there. And but whenever it's Houston and it's somebody who, you know, the best who's like consistently like slightly above five hundred and uh, get knocked out of the second round of the playoffs, it makes that sort of model a little bit harder to enjoy because you you kind you you kind of lose some sort of ideas and. Everything is kind of trapped in the same like Houston bubble of you know tough, tough, smart, and dependable, and uh, and being a Pisces, you know. So Jordan, what do you think about uh, Bill O'Brien? Ha- like it's his job, and he owns it, and he's able to build a culture entirely in his image. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I like the idea of it. like technically it should work, and the idea of it, like you said, like if he, if he was better at doing it, like it would be great and having a full like one vision that everyone can get behind it's important in the business to have like a culture and a vision that everyone is on the same page with like if you have dysfunction within your organization it's it's not going to work like everything starts from the top right so i i get i like the i like execution that's another thing but we're not we're not talking about that today so yeah that's that's where i'll end because i feel like you guys pretty much summed it up very well so what's the 
what's the head coaching reason that you have for Bill O'Brien? Yeah, so I could only really think of one other one that you guys haven't mentioned so far. And for me, it's basically that he's never really lost the locker room. And you could say that about a lot of other coaches that they have lost locker room. You hear players... Am I still there? Yeah, okay. Um, players like speaking out badly about them. Like You've never really heard a player who's currently on the team. Like You've heard people afterwards or whatever, but you never really heard someone like come out and, and really trash talk them too much. So there's that. And there's also the fact that like... Like I said, he hasn't really like lost the locker room where the point with like even like the blowout games like last year against the Broncos, the Ravens, like I went back and rewatched them and, and it was painful to rewatch. But the players were still like pr- playing pretty hard. Like no one gave up. No one was just like not putting in effort. Like so there's that. That's like a, a pretty decent thing, I guess you could say about him. Um he's never really lost the locker room, yeah. Yeah, and I think a good example of that too is whenever Houston started 0 and three in two thousand eighteen. I've I've remembered it being 0 and 4, but I forgot they beat the Colts in overtime to stave off 0 and 4. But they start 0 and 3, and they won nine games in a row and end up going uh, 11 and 5 that year, winning the division, then losing to the first in the playoffs to the Colts. But I think that was really a situation where the whole thing could have cratered and the Texans could have gone, you know, 4 and 12 and had an awful season despite everything, all the talent they had in that locker room, and you know, Walt and Clowney finally being healthy in the same team and. They're able to to prevent that from happening, and you know, still make the postseason. Have a awful first round loss at home to Indy, but you know, go from zero and three, make the playoffs. I think they were only one of four teams to ever do that, and I think that's also another good example of him like maintaining the locker room and making sure players like to play for him. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I feel like players they like to they most of them at least like to play for him. They won't say anything really bad about him as a coach. They like that aspect of him. I feel like they don't really respect him. Which as a GM, especially with this last all season, but as a coach, I feel like majority of the players are in favor of him. So we're gonna move on now to uh, him being a general manager. So I know Carlos, you have one, and Jordan, you have two uh, plus general manager one. So Carlos, what's your uh, good general manager Bill O'Brien uh, detail you have there? Well, mine is that it seems that he really enjoys picking up uh i guess the pick that nobody sees coming right everybody kind of has this list especially around draft time of optimal draft picks for you know whichever round and he just seems to go against it pretty regularly um he gets players that fit his scheme really well um i mean greenard was a really solid pickup this year i think from big school that a lot of people recognize but going getting charlie heck in the fourth trading up making these surprise decisions i mean it seems like he has an idea of what he really wants and he knows when to go get it i mean he does have a history of getting fleeced but uh whenever he does decide to move up it seems that uh he's definitely got his heart set on some really specific guys that that fit what that fit fits what he wants to do yeah i I like a way to put it is that he's very aggressive and once he knows what he wants to do like you said he'll go do it and that was a big like it was a big fri- breath of fresh air for me going from brian Gain, who was just extremely passive and never really wanted to make a big move and wasn't looking to pay anyone didn't want to pay tyron matthew all that stuff like going from that kind of passive um plan as a gm to bill o'brien just going out trading everyone trading picks trading whatever to get the team that he wants I think that was really good. That's it's 
my favorite quality of him as a GM. Uh, what were your what were your two pro Bill O'Brien general manager uh, details, Jordan? Yeah, so for me, I guess it kind of goes along that same um, length of being aggressive and making trades and stuff. For me, as much as I hate the trade and I still hate it and I will always hate it and I will never agree with it, you could look at it and say that we kind of won the Jadavion Clowney trade. I mean, in terms of getting value, getting Gary on Conley, who I'm actually super high on after I went back and reviewed a season, I think he can be cornerback one for sure. Getting Conley, and then of course, getting the man, the myth, the legend. Getting both of those guys for Clowney, that's actually a really good value, seeing as Seattle didn't even get all the games for Seattle, and then that's it. He's not resigning, right? So they're not going to, I don't think they're going to even be able to get a comp pick out of that which everyone was like, oh, at the very least, you should be able to get a third-round pick out of him. So he turned that value into pretty good. not being signed. He's still kind of overvaluing himself, and that's unfortunate. I love him to death. But, yeah, you can honestly say that we, we won that trade. Yeah, I, I think that trade's kind of weird where and it, it kind of feels like neither team won that trade. I mean, I don't think Seattle makes the postseason. And like, they definitely don't beat... Um, they definitely don't win their first postseason game against Philly unless Clowney, like Clowney, won that game just by hitting Carson Wentz in the head as he was sliding, you know, in a weird way. And so maybe they don't win that game if he doesn't yeah. do that. And so, like in a sense, like trading at their own pick and Martin or whatever is fine for the chance to be able to play the Packers. And like he dominated the first half of that Packers game, and then they just stopped running the ball towards him, and they started running the ball whenever he came off the field, and were able to be more of a balanced passing attack and. Uh, Devontae Adams did some squirrely stuff to beat their cover three to, you know, get guys turning and running and getting their blind spot and take off as well. Um, but yeah, it's weird because it's like Seattle, you gave up very little for, you know, one year rental of him and with their salary cap issues by paying, you know, Russell Wilson, 31.5 million this year, it's hard for them to pay that much for an edge defender. who doesn't sack the quarterback at all. And they have like a lot of bodies in their defensive line, some depth too. And, I, I think the bigger problem with Clowney was he just completely misjudged his own market and he won twenty million, only five players get that and he should probably like be looking for like, you know, sixteen or whatever. And uh it'll be interesting to see where he signs. But I do think Houston's defense was worse last year and whenever you're in a situation where you have a quarterback on a rookie contract, like that's the cheat code to have a great team. Like that's the easiest path to building a great team is having a great young quarterback who you only have to pay you know, $2 million a year, who you're going to have to pay $30 million a year soon. And so that you can build an entire complete roster by doing so. I think Houston by train Clowney um, really hurt their season last year. One, because they didn't have the pressure to get to the quarterback, which their past defense depended on. And two, like they weren't able to fully uh, take advantage of this like window they had with Watson and they made their own team worse off by making that trade as well, too. So, I mean, it's weird. Like, I think Seattle still won the trade uh, because they got clowning for very little. But it didn't work out. Like, the trade was a disaster. And uh, it didn't work out as bad for Houston as I envisioned it. And I think, like, even thinking about the Hopkins trade, too. Like, I don't think that I think the Hopkins trades can make Houston worse off. Or the Clowney trade did. But it's it's not going to be a disaster, I don't think. Like, they still have Watson. They still have, like, competent skill players around him. Um, the trade was bad, and like what their return they got was bad. Some of the clowny trade too, but I don't think it's gonna be a disaster. And uh, I think better play calling is gonna make it seem like the Texans were. If they do have better play calling, it'll make it seem like the Texans improved by getting rid of clown, getting rid of Hopkins. But I don't see that being the case. Um, Carlos, what do you think? Do you think the Texans won the clowny trade? I think considering what we got in return, um, I don't know if we won because I would have loved JD. 
to be on that defense last year. I think he would have helped. He's an impact player, not really stats production wise, but you feel him on the field. He leaves a mark on the field whenever he's in. Uh, so I think it, it actually kind of balances out evenly. Uh, we did get two players, and we got Conley, and we got uh, J-Mart, you know, the GOAT. We got him. So really, that, that's enough to win it right there. But I think uh, in terms of what we got in return, we got two, or at least Conley was a, was a, was a great value player for us last season. Um, and Martin, he's a great prospect. He's a very interesting prospect to say the least uh you know see what, what he shakes out on the team but for jd to walk and go test free agency i think you're right he did overvalue his market i think he is more in that fifth uh i mean 16 you know 15 million dollar range i think is a pretty fair number uh so i think it kind of evens out i don't know if anybody really won in a giant regard but it seems pretty fair to me uh, i'm not mad with the trade anymore at least yeah, and it's weird too where like every single trade that gets made, somebody has to win, but both teams can win the trade or you know, both teams can kinda of suffer from it. And uh I don't I don't know. It's it's a weird it's one of the weirdest trades that's kind of happened. Uh what's your last one you have there, Jordan? Yeah, actually just before I go over that one, I kinda of wanna talk about the DeAndre Hopkins trade. I've got a yeah. question for you guys. I think yeah. would it look better for you? So I think a big thing of the blowback between Hopkins but it happened, and then there was like no. It seemed like there was no vision in place, no plan. But then later was then we made the Brandon Cooks trade, and people were like, oh, okay, I kind of see it. We're moving to that more speed, maybe. Um, and so that kind of maybe calmed people down. Like people are still upset about the trade, but kind of calmed people down. So I got a question: Is if it was kind of like a three-team trade where we got David Johnson, we got. Um, the 57th pick or whatever it was for Hopkins, and then and then like right away traded that 57th pick for um, Brandon Cooks. Do you think if that was all like one big three team trade where it's all announced at once, do you think that would have like made the trade hurt a lot less and people like it wouldn't have had so much blowback? I I don't think so. Mainly because I'd still rather have Hopkins than Blacklock at 40, Cooks and David Johnson, and like I. I don't think the trade's gonna be a disaster at all, but uh, I think Hopkins as being like a top three receiver, like he's not gonna be replaced by you know Cooks and Johnson, and like I don't think Johnson's gonna be very good at all next year. I think he's gonna have a lot of games where he has twenty carries for you know seventy yards and he catches some passes in the flat or whatever. But like Duke Johnson's an even better receiver than David Johnson is, and David Johnson hasn't had a, a really good season since. You know, 2016, that's the only really good season he's had in his career. And also, they had to pay a lot of money for him as well, too, um, this year, which doesn't make any sense for a running back, too. And, like, at least get Kenyon Drake. Like, Kenyon Drake would have been a much better player to pick up than David Johnson, but Houston's been enamored with him. And, like, I really like Cooks and the skill set he brings, but the concussions are a really big concern. And I think, like, a lot of the cute things he does, like, you know, screens and jet sweeps and stuff, I don't even want to see him run those at all. Uh, just because of the concussions where he's one bad hit from you know, taking something like that. Like, even if he runs a deep dig against, you know, across the zones and quarters or whatever that he's good at doing, like, that could take a, take a big hit, too. Or if they do any sort of trap where the corner, you know, sits and the linebacker cuts it off and ears hold him, like, that could be you hit for him, too, with the number of concussions he had. Uh, but, like, even if it was set up like that, I still wouldn't think it's a good trade just because I still don't like the return. And the other thing I did, I really don't like about the trade that 
kind of really irks me to the O'Brien thing was making this idea that it was about money. Like Houston couldn't afford Hopkins, which was completely true, was completely untrue, wasn't correct at all. Um, was like a pretty much like a straight out lie as a way to kind of sugarcoat that it was more of a trade to have to do with and a disagreement with, you know, like culture and the fact that those two guys, you know, he just was never able to get along with Hopkins for, you know, whatever reasons they'd had, a, you know, like a poor, like coach to player relationship. And it does seem like that was a trade made more so than they feel like, you know, this offense can take off without him or this offense seem to be better without him or, you know, David Johnson, Brand Cooks is better than having, you know, DeAndre Hopkins as well too. And so that's that's the other thing I don't I don't like about it. Like I think the Texans talent is worse off without him, but I do think if they actually change their play calling, uh it will mitigate that and the offense could be better next year. But I think it has more to say about how bad the play calling was in 2019, 2018 than it has to do with uh Hopkins switching out being, you know, a really great decision. Uh, what do you think, Carlos? I think if it were turned into a three-team trade, right? We we take everything and we put it all in one grand event i think it helps the optics of the trade for the public to kind of be like okay you know we kind of see where bill's trying to go here uh we see you know kind of a little bit of the plan by separating it i think it leaves the initial standing of like oh my god we got rid of deandre hopkins then the second trade later on like okay so this is what we ended up doing with that you know hole um I think putting it together would have made it a little bit more digestible digestible for people. But I do think that there isn't really replacing D-Hop and what he brought to the table. But if Bill is willing to change the offense and stop trying to fit a square peg into a round hole, because it seemed like that's what was happening last year and why D-Hop's numbers were down. He is a top three receiver in the league, period. Um, just in what he brings to the table, his skill set, it's just the offensive play calling that results in the lower production. So hopefully he goes to Arizona, he lights it up, you know, he gets back to being regarded as one of the top receivers in the game and Houston's changing their offense and we end up relying on that speed, stretching the field, and we start putting up crazy numbers. I mean, I just think it definitely was a matter of disagreement between B.O.B. and DeAndre that led to him being shipped out. It's unfortunate. But maybe now Bill O'Brien's kind of forced his hand to come up with a cohesive offensive identity with this team. Yeah, I think I, I like your point about him basically lying to the media and saying what the reason for the trade of Nuke was. I think that's what pissed me off a lot too. Just like just come out and be honest about it, like that you guys had like a bad relationship or whatever. Like everyone everyone could tell at that point, like it's not about the money when you go ahead and pay Randall Cobb, like $10 million a year, Eric Murray, however much it was, $8 million a year, and then take on the same amount of money in salary with David Johnson than you were sending out with Hopkins. So, like, clearly that just wasn't... No, Bill O'Brien, he's never, like, been a fan of the media, and I guess that he gets that from Belichick, so maybe he just doesn't even really take the media seriously when, he, when he's trying to answer things, and I don't know. That's all I really got. Yeah. Uh, what's, your, what's your second one for O'Brien being a good general manager? Um, my last one was actually just uh, just kind of like the being aggressive thing that I talked about and, and Carlos was talking about. So, yeah, I just I like that he he never like went, I guess. And we saw it last year where even when we're this late in the in off season, like he's still gonna make changes, still gonna make big changes. Like the Tunsil trade happened like so last minute before the season started. So like 
we don't know. Like this, the team that we're sitting with right now, it could change a lot even before the season starts. So I, I just like his aggressive nature that he he's not gonna he's not gonna sit on his hands. He's gonna he's gonna make changes if he if he sees fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's kind of I guess the the issue with having a head coach as a general manager where you have a head coach who is more likely to get fired and his entire goal is to win games that year. And who knows how long his, his leash is for you know, being a coach or whatever. And so like, if he's on the hot seat, then he'll be more brash to make immediate, like uh, current decisions that will you know, affect the team moving forward in the future. And so like, it's good to have that aggressiveness whenever you have like a situation where you have like a really, like a head coach who's going to be there for a long time where there's no sort of hot seat or turmoil at all when uh, they consistently have like deep playoff runs. And that's where aggressiveness makes sense. Like I think Baltimore is a really good example of a team who is like smart with how they, how they're aggressive where they're not really brash with it. And I think you kind of see this in the basketball a lot too, where you see guys get traded um, for, you know, spots to win for this year and they take on weird salaries and stuff because it helps them with this year. And then the next year it's an immediate disaster too. So it had that aggressiveness thing does have its perks and it's, and it's downsides. And, you know, regardless of that, though, like if Bill O'Brien wants to see something happen, like he goes out and makes it happen, uh, no matter how many times the Dolphins tell him no, you can keep adding picks to, <laughs> to get Laramie Tunsil. Yeah, I think you're right. And with the, t- the timing thing, like we mentioned before, having Deshaun Watson on his, I guess this is his last year of his rookie contract mm-hmm. now, they just picked up his option. So I guess that was the time if he was going to go all in, I guess that's what his, his way of round picks and a second for Tunsil and all those other moves that they made during way through third rounders for Duke Johnson um but yeah so I guess the thing with me is I can like I hate Bill O'Brien and I can criticize him and I can do that all day and but eventually I I guess I just I get tired of it like I don't want to have to keep complaining keep being negative about it and I can see kind of the the plan that he's he's um forming I don't I won't always agree with it but I can see where he's coming from yeah, I can I can see the plan like the roster here if they do something in offense they've never done before, and that's kind of the one thing holding me back. And like, yeah, they have a new offensive coordinator, but the only place the only person Tim Kelly's ever coached for is for pretty much Bill O'Brien. You know, like he's not some outside influence who I think is going to bring, um, you know, some big whole new world of ideas at all. He's just going to be an extension, a, a tentacle off of Bill O'Brien. You know, and so I don't I don't like until I see it happen, until I see like you know Cooks and and Fuller and David Johnson and Kenny Stills running four verts on first and ten with the ball at their own twenty-five yard line. Like I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna really believe until that happens, you know. And whenever it does, then I'll have more faith in the idea what this plan is. Because like again, I can, I can see on paper and see what they're looking to do. Even if I don't think it, it's great. I think there's like a, a lot of injury, a lot of like potential for it to go really badly. But again, like if the play calling is better for you know football in 2020. And what the way it works now, uh, I do think like regardless of the decisions that he made, the offense will be much better too. But yeah, I mean, I agree with you as well, Jor, on the fact that like even if you dislike Bill Brown after a while, it's like yeah, like he's not going anywhere, you know. And yeah, exactly. you only get sixteen of these games, and you want to enjoy the games, enjoy the season. And whenever you're constantly looking at it, it's like yeah, this is dumb, this is stupid, um, then you lose a lot of the enjoyment with it. And like I know I wasn't personally able to really savor DeAndre Hopkins' time in Houston because I was constantly like, well, he's in the slot and he's catching seven passes for 63 yards and this is stupid. And seven Jordan, like that little quirk or whatever. And 
uh, and that sort of thing. So, or being like, yeah, he's incredible, but you know, he has Brian Hoyer throwing the football. What's the point at all, anyways? What's the point of anything at all, you know? And <laughs> uh, and so so now I know, like, I'm kind of like, yeah, whatever happens, happens with it. And I've taken my view of sports is kind of turns to just like it's more about being entertaining than necessarily it is about winning and losing that sort of thing. Yeah, I get that because like I struggle with that too. And I think for me, it's like, it's just so out of our control. Like there's nothing we can say, no matter how long we rant about it, we're not going to change any Bill O'Brien's decisions. We're not going to change how they play on the field. So it's just so out of control. So you're right. Just like seeing sports in a way where it's entertaining and you can still cheer for your team and obviously still want them to win, but finding like the little things that you can enjoy, like, like finding like a guy like Jacob Martin that isn't, is like a nobody and is, is like, you like finding that type of passion. It's like, that's, what's going to like keep you in love with sports, I guess. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and like, I guess like the only downside to it's like, well, you never get Bill O'Brien as the offensive coordinator and he's around the ball in first times with Carlos high 15 times a game. Uh, that's not fun football and that's not enjoyable football. And so, you know, at the same time, like uh, whenever you have that sort of conservative play calling, the team isn't as interesting as it could be and as entertaining as it should be as well, too. Um, but I, I think like after this exercise, I think I have a really like better idea and understanding. Like, I, I feel like I really understand Bill O'Brien's head coach now just by sitting here and going through like the good stuff he's done and, uh, and knowing how much worse it could be. And I think I also am able to better appreciate, understand all the bad stuff too. And uh, like for this entire season, like it's going to be kind of the big, I guess one of the big narratives in the league is if the Texans can, make the, can take the next step and you know, get past the first round and how all these decisions Bill O'Brien made um, this offseason, if they're going to pay off at all. Uh, so, but yeah, this was, this was good. What about you, Carlos? Do you have any other, any other thoughts on this mental exercise we completed? Honestly, I think this upcoming season, actually, I'm really excited considering all the tumultuous, tumultuous things that have happened this off season, you know, I, I feel like it's almost like unwrapping a mystery box, right? You're, you just don't know what you're going to get this season. It could be a high flying, ridiculously fun offense. Um, or at the same time, it could be a total breakdown of the team. We have a crazy, you know, rough season and we finally see, hopefully maybe see the boot given to a BOB if things go wrong. But, you know, I think there's a lot of potential there, and it's going to be really interesting to see if the team puts it together. And, uh, you know, it's I feel super excited to see what happens. This exercise, it was it was fun. It was interesting. It was kind of like going through therapy and just kind of talking things out. And um, it was good to, like, put everything into perspective. Like, like you said, like, if you're only thinking about one spectrum, then you kind of just get lost in your thoughts and you don't really have a good argument at all if you, if you can't put things into perspective. So it was good to see, and yeah, I don't, I don't know how like you can't be excited about a season. Like I'll pretty much never be like not excited for a season. Sean Watson, I think with him, he's the main guy. Like he's going to win us games. He's going to carry us. I strongly believe we're going to make the playoffs because of him. I think he's going to have an MVP level season, and he's going to make football fun. It's always fun with him. He makes crazy plays. He gets kicked in the eye. He throws blind touchdowns. Like he's just he's Houdini. He's a magician. So with him, I'll always have faith in Texans and be excited to watch them. Yeah, and that's a that's a great point too. Like with with Watson, you know, anything's possible at all, or all through things, all things through Watson, anything is possible. And 
Uh, and like, I'm really interested just to see what's going to happen this one possession record thing because I do think if Houston, if it flips and they're like, you know, four and five or uh, in one score in their one score records next year, like they may miss the playoffs, and it'd be interesting to see how much of an effect regression has next year, or if they have like a negative turnover differential. But I do think you know it's going to come down to you know Watson improving as a quarterback, um, the offense improving too, you know, having more hot routes and more reads for them. And uh, allow me get the ball out quicker and be more vertical. So the only viewer question we had here tonight or listener question was from at report Texans. And they asked, not as a play crawler, but as a head coach, what improvements would you like to see O'Brien, see out of O'Brien this coming year? And, uh, you know, if we're not talking about him as a play caller, him as a head coach, I guess it's just kind of like getting more out of some of these other players that he has. Like, I don't think cutie is going to stay on the field at all, but like, I really like to see Kahali Waring do more, I'd just see some more stuff out of the young players this season. And also, I do hope with Tim Kelly being the offensive coordinator, you know, and O'Brien's not calling plays at all, that like he'll be more in tune with having a play ready to go in fourth and one, um, knowing that, hey, don't challenge this because you're going to waste a timeout and you're talking about seven yards here and seven yards isn't worth the potential of losing a timeout. And it's dubious that it may flip it all to begin with as well, too. And so I do hope with Kelly as the offensive coordinator, O'Brien has more of ability to to do that. And also week to week game plan too. And I know there's that podcast and move the sticks they had last year where Lanzi said, Well, you know, Brian's not looking looking at the game plan until Thursday, making adjustments, and they're not doing their walkthrough till like Saturday or whatever. And uh, both Bucky Brooks and Daniel Jeremiah kind of lost their minds hearing that. So like that's way too late at all and, and it's hard to have like a cohesive game plan because of that. And so I do hope that O'Brien gets some more time, you know, game plan and focusing on the opponent and develop better game plans because he doesn't have to play call and do all that sort of stuff later in the week. And so not him as a play caller, but as him a head coach. Those are two things I'd like to see out of him this upcoming year. Um Carlos, so any things that you would like to see out of O'Brien, not as a play caller, but as a head coach? Man, I was gonna jump right into play calling. Uh, well, go, go I would ahead. say as a head go coach, ahead, um, I would, well, as a as a head coach, I would definitely like to see him at least play a little nicer with the media. It seems like every press conference I see him, and he's just, you know, really like, oh, let me get this over with. And uh, oftentimes he can be a little combative too, depending on the question. And uh, you know, I just think it's a part of the it's part of the job to face everybody and go out and put on a smile and be diplomatic so i think he could work to be a little bit better at that but play calling wise i definitely want to see you know now that we have this uh uptick in speed it'd be nice to see some rpo you know uh, kind of copy the chiefs a little bit use some of that speed to our advantage give Deshaun some options on every play um you know i can just almost see it if they do it right being able to stretch the field option out to Duke if they need to. And if anything, if the whole play breaks down, we've still got Sean that has the wheels to pick up yards. So, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, from, I guess those would be the two things. I like that. What do you have, Jordan? Um, for me, so just to start off, something that people don't really take into mind, actually, like coaches improving. Like we'd always talk about like players improving, but no, like they can. I mean, one of the best examples for me is like Andy Reid. Like Andy Reid was not a very good coach. Like he was he was okay, but he's not like the coach that he is nowadays. Where he's one of the best coaches in the league, and I think I don't think that's really up for debate. So like coaches can improve too, and I think what I would look for, um, like we mentioned before, Bill O'Brien, he doesn't get the most out of his talent. 
And it'll go elevating the talent on the roster by kind of putting them in positions to succeed, putting them in positions to play their strengths. Like you said, like we should not be seeing Angelo Blackson on third down trying to rush the passer. Like just play him first second down, stop the run, whatever. Things like that. Like I don't want to see Brendan Scarlett in coverage. I don't want you to be rotating Charlie Heck and Roger Johnson. Like just play one person, let them get in rhythm. Like things, little things like that. Just playing players to their strengths and kind of maybe making more adjustments to his scheme rather than having people try and fit into, like Carlos said, like a square peg in a round hole. So those are two little things for me. I like it. Uh, so that's that's our show for tonight. We will probably have a show on later for this weekend for your, your Saturday walks or uh, Sunday thunderstorms. And then next week or sometime soon, we'll do, uh, let's talk about some guys. And we'll uh, every time I think, we'll I have nothing left to say or nothing left to talk about about this team or football in general. You know, something always kind of pops up. So uh, we'll keep the show going throughout the summer. And, you know, hopefully we're able to start the show again, like for the 2020 season round time. And, uh, everybody stays healthy and this whole you know little bug goes away as Kyle McNair puts it and uh, everything goes back to you know somewhat semblance of normal as well too but anyways thank you for listening to Battle Red Radio thank you for being on the sh- show tonight Carlos and Jordan and again I'm Matt Weston thank you for listening to Battle Red